Section 14 of Mrs. Shelley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mrs. Shelley by Lucy Maddox Brown Rossetti. Chapter 8, Part 1. Return to England. On leaving the Lake of Geneva on August 28, without having accomplished anything in the way of a settlement for Clare, but with pleasant reminiscences of Rousseau's surroundings and the grandeur of the Alps, the party of three returned towards England by way of Dijon, and thence by a different route from that by which they had gone, returning by Vouvray, Auxerre, Fontainebleau, and Versailles. Here Mary and Shelley visited the palace and town, which a few years hence she would revisit under far different circumstances. Travelling in those days, so very unlike what it is in ours, when Europe can be crossed without being examined, allowed them to become acquainted with the towns they passed through. Ruin was visited, but for some reason they were disappointed with the cathedral. From Havre they sailed for Portsmouth, when, with their usual fate, they encountered a stormy passage of twenty-seven hours. It must have been a trying journey for them in more ways than one. For if there was any uncertainty as to Clare's position on leaving England, Mary could now no longer have been in any doubt. On arriving in England, she proceeded, with Clare and her little William, with his Swiss nurse Elise, to Bath, where Clare passed as Mrs. Claremont. Shelley addressed her as such at five Abbey Churchyard Bath. During this time Shelley was again house-hunting, while staying with Peacock on the banks of the Thames. And Mary paid a visit to Peacock at the same time, leaving little William to the care of Elise and Clare at Bath. From here Clare writes to Mary about the itty babe's baby ways, and how she and Elise puzzled and puzzled over the little nightgowns, or quoting Alby, as they called Byron, it has been suggested a condensation of L.B. They mused and coddled without effect. Clare certainly did her best to take care of the baby, walking out with it and so forth. Now the three hundred pounds, written of by Fanny, was falling due. Mary must also have been kept in great apprehension, as we see by a letter from Shelley to Godwin, dated October 2, 1816, that the money was not forthcoming as hoped. So the fatal Rhine-Gold is again helping to a tragedy, which the Romantic prefer to impute to a still more fatal cause, for so short a time after the second as October 10th. We find Fanny already at Bristol, writing to Godwin that she is about to depart immediately to the place when she hopes never to return. On October 3rd there is a long letter from her to Mary, written just after Shelley's letter had reached Godwin, when she had read its contents on Godwin's countenance as he perused it. Her letter is most clear-sighted, noble, and single-minded. She complains of Mary's way of exaggerating Mrs. Godwin's resentment to herself, explaining that whatever Mrs. Godwin may say in moments of extreme irritation to her, she is quite incapable of making the worst of Mary's behavior to others. She shows Mary her own carelessness in leaving letters about for the servants to read, so that they and Harriet spread the reports she complains of, rather than Mrs. Godwin. She tells how she had tried to convince Shelley that he should only keep French servants, and she endeavors to persuade Mary how important it is that they should prevent bad news coming to Godwin in a way to give a sudden shock, as he is so sensitive. She saw through certain subterfuges of Shelley, and wrote in a calm, affectionate way, trying to set everything right, with a wonderful clearness of vision, for everyone but herself. For herself there was no outlet but despair, no rest but the grave. She, the utterly unselfish one, was useless. All that remained was to smooth her way to the grave, 
not for herself but others, she managed to die where she was unknown, travelling for this purpose to Swansea, where only a few shillings remained to her, and a little watch Mary had brought her from Geneva. She wrote of herself in a letter she left which neither compromised any one nor indicated who she was, as one whose birth was unfortunate, but whose existence would soon be forgotten. Poor Fanny! Is she not rather likely to be remembered as a type of self-abnegation? Certainly hers was not the nature to cause her sister a moment's jealous pang, even though her death called forth one of Shelley's sweetest lyrics. There was nothing to be done. Godwin paid a brief visit to the scene, and ascertained that all was too true. The door, that had had to be forced, the laudanum bottle, and her letter told all that need be known. Shelley visited Bristol to obtain information, but there was no use in giving publicity to this fresh family sorrow. Discretion was the only sympathy that could be shown. Mary bought mourning and worked at it. Claire envied for herself Fanny's rest, but life had to proceed awaiting fresh events. Work was the great resource. Mary was writing her Frankenstein. She persisted with the utmost fortitude in intellectual employment, as poor Fanny wrote to Mary on September 26th. I cannot help envying your calm, contented disposition, and the calm philosophical habits of life which pursue yon, or rather which you pursue everywhere. I allude to your description of the manner in which you pass your days at Bath, when most women would hardly have recovered from the fatigues of such a journey as you had been taking. This is indeed the keynote of Mary's character, which, with her sensitive retiring nature, enabled her to live through the stormy times of her life with equanimity. Mary had Shelley's company through November, but at the beginning of December she writes to Shelley, who is again staying with Peacock house-hunting. Mary tells him what she would like, a house with a lawn near a river or lake, noble trees or divine mountains. But she would be content if Shelley would give her a garden and absentia Clare. This is very different from her way of thinking of Fanny, who, she says, might now have had a home with her. This expression occurs in a letter to Shelley, when she was on the point of marrying him, and might have had Fanny with her. Mary also speaks of her drawing lessons, and how, thank God, she had finished that tedious ugly picture she had been so long about. This points to that terrible way of teaching art, by accustoming its students to hideousness and vulgarity, till art itself might become an unknown quantity. Mary also tells, what is more interesting, that she has finished the fourth chapter, a very long one, of her Frankenstein, which she thinks Shelley will like. She wishes for his return. On December 13th, Mary receives a letter from Shelley, who is with Lee Hunt. On December 15th, 1816, he is back with Mary at Bath. When a letter from Hookham, who had been requested by Shelley to obtain information about Harriet for him, brought further fatal news, for Harriet had now committed suicide, and had been found drowned in the Serpentine. Unknown, she was called Harriet Smith. Uncared for, she had gone to her grave beneath the water. Unloved, the lovely Harriet cared not to live. What may have happened? It is not for those who may not have been tried to question. Of cause and effect, it is not for us to judge. But that her memory must have been a haunting shadow to Shelley and to Mary, no one would wish to think them, heartless enough to deny. Surely the lovely lines, with no name affixed, must be the dirge to Harriet's fate and Shelley's life's failure. The cold earth slept below, above the cold sky shone, and all around, with a chilling sound, from caves of ice and fields of snow, the breath of night like death did flow, beneath the sinking moon. The wintry hedge was black, the green grass was not seen, 
The birds did rest on the bare thorn's breast, whose roots beside the pathway track had bound their folds over many a crack which the frost had made between. Thine eyes glowed in the glare of the moon's dying light, as a fen-fire's beam on a sluggish stream gleams dimly so the moon shone there, and it yellowed the strings of thy tangled hair that shook in the wind of the night. The moon made thy lips pale, beloved, the wind made thy bosom chill, the night did shed on thy dear head its frozen dew, and thou didst lie where the bitter breath of the naked sky might visit thee at will. These lines are dated 1815 by Mary in her edition, but she says she cannot answer for the accuracy of all the dates of minor poems. The death of Harriet was necessarily quickly followed by the marriage of Shelley and Mary. The most sound opinions were ascertained as to the desirability of an early marriage, or of postponing the ceremony for a year after the death of Harriet. All agreed that the wedding ought to take place without delay, and it was fixed for December 30th, 1816, at St. Mildred's Church in the city, where Godwin and his wife were present, to their no little satisfaction, as described by Shelley to Clare. Mary notes her marriage thus in her diary. I have omitted writing my journal for some time. Shelley goes to London and returns. I go with him. Spend the time between Lee Hunt's and Godwin's. A marriage takes place on the 30th, December 1816. Draw. Read Lord Chesterfield and Locke. No sooner was the marriage over than their one anxiety was to return to Bath. For now the time of Clare's trial was approaching, and on January 13th a little girl was born, not destined to remain long in a world so sad for some. Little Allegra, a child of rare beauty, was welcomed by Shelley and Mary, with all the benevolence they were capable of, and Byron's duty to his child devolved, for the time at least, on Shelley. End of section 14